Well, this morning we are starting a three-week sermon series called A Message to Be Shared, which is a series with an evangelistic focus. And I'm really excited to be looking at the Bible and seeing what Jesus taught about how we're to share His amazing message of salvation. Now, as we begin today, I need to start by making a disclaimer. I have a spoiler alert. And the next five minutes, I'm going to be talking about the realities of Santa Claus. So if there are any parents who are trying to keep the magic of Christmas alive and you have influential children present, if you can currently hear what I'm saying, and that includes those that can hear me on the speaker in the lounge, it might be time to have a bathroom break. They don't all seem to be panicking, so let's just go for it. When I was a young boy, I loved Christmas. And most of all, I loved the magic of Santa Claus. A man who traveled around the world bringing toys to boys and girls. I mean, what's not to love? In fact, as I got older and my brain started to work out the realities of Christmas, I desperately held on to the dream of Santa Claus because I didn't want to stop receiving presents from him. As long as my parents still think that I believe, then I get presents from both Santa as well as my parents. So in my mind, as I did a cost-benefit analysis, I'd better hold on to this belief in the man in the red suit because this means I receive double presents. However, as I approached age 20, I decided that it was probably time to admit defeat and acknowledge the truth that Santa is a made-up character. Well, the great news is, even though I've acknowledged that I don't believe in Santa, to this day, Santa still leaves me presents. <laughs> Go figure, it's been a win-win scenario. Now, when it comes to Christmas, most children have a, a reality that is one day going to be have to reinvented by the truth. The magical world of Christmas turns out to be mum and dad that just want to spoil their children and keep them young and naive for as long as possible. Now, like most things, Santa Claus is not completely made up. A few hundred years after Jesus was resurrected, there was a Christian man named Nicholas who was known to secretly give gifts to those in need. It was in remembrance and celebration of Saint Nicholas that the Dutch created Sinterklaas, which then evolved in other cultures to become Santa Claus. So the myth of Santa Claus transpired from the very real life of Saint Nicholas. It's one of those scenarios where fact became fiction. In fact, when you explore a lot of the myths and legends of old, a lot of them started with a very real scenario that was then exaggerated. And over time, it becomes this fictional legend. Where am I going with this? Well, this kind of thing can even happen when it comes to the Bible. You see, just like St. Nicholas evolved into Santa Claus, there are realities of the Bible that can actually be taken out of context. And then over time, it's like a new reality is created that is not necessarily what the Bible was teaching. I want to give you a big example. Brace yourself. Your worlds are about to be shattered. Heaven. I would argue that most Christians in the West have an understanding of heaven that has been influenced more by other cultures than by the Bible. The understanding that many people have today is that we live life, 
We are saved by Jesus Christ so that one day in the future, we will get to go to heaven. Do you know that this concept, that heaven is a place that we're one day heading towards, is not something that is taught in the Old or New Testament. It is not a Jewish or early church teaching. The idea that heaven is a place that we're destined to one day reside actually comes from Greek philosophy. And somehow in the last 300 years, the modern church has taken this idea and run with it. In fact, as an example, even tried and true hymns like Amazing Grace can enforce this misinterpretation. Let's have a look at the final verse of Amazing Grace from the the original. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. When I read those lyrics, I have one question. Where is the earth going? Why is the earth dissolving? It's lyrics like this that paint this picture that we're one day going to leave all this behind and go to this place called heaven. But that is not what the Bible teaches us about heaven. As N.T. Wright says in one of his books, the four gospels have very little to say about this topic. Almost nobody talks about going to heaven. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't mean a place called heaven, but the rule of heaven that is God's reign coming to birth on earth. If you track the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, you will not find teaching about us one day going to heaven. Rather, you'll find a lot of teaching about heaven. That's God's presence coming down to earth. We need to realize that creation is not a mistake. God created the universe perfectly. Humans were placed in creation to be in the image of God and reflect God to creation. Humans, unfortunately, rebelled. And then the rest of the biblical account is about God restoring creation so that He can dwell among us once again. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, is not about us disappearing and going to heaven. Rather, it's about God coming back to creation. It's about the new heavens and the new earth. There we go. It's about the new Jerusalem, God's presence coming down and dwelling in creation. We need to understand that the entire biblical story teaches us that creation is going to be restored. Now, why is it important for us to understand that the Bible doesn't teach us that we'll one day go to heaven Rather, the Bible teaches us that heaven is coming down to earth. Because if we are living our lives so that Jesus saves us, so that we can one day depart for heaven, then what's the point of changing the way we're living? What's the point of looking after creation and building God's kingdom here on earth if we're one day going to leave it all behind and it's all going to dissolve like snow? However... If we understand that God's goal is to restore creation back to its original intent, then that changes how we live right here, right now. It's not about one day departing. It's about God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And remember, in this circumstance, heaven is not a place. Heaven is God's presence, God's reign coming to birth on earth, which makes sense when we think about that line being said in the Lord's Prayer on earth 
as it is in heaven. Jesus came to start the process of restoration. And then here is the mind-boggling part. Jesus has now charged us to continue the process of being image bearers and living for his kingdom until he returns. I mean, we have a job to do. Our number one trade in life should be living for the kingdom of God in all that we do. We are to reflect God to the world around us until he returns and comes back to physically dwell in creation forever. So now that we've got our good foundation, now that we know biblically what God is doing with creation, it's time to look at what Jesus says about what we should be doing with our lives as we continue the work Jesus started. We can now explore the job he has given us as we look to our Christian trade or vocation. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew 28, reading verses 16 through 20. Nice and short today. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The first point for us this morning is our trade is to worship. Matthew paints a beautiful picture in the first three verses. He said, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, if you're anything like me, then the first thing you might have noticed is that some of the disciples doubted. Now, those three words but some doubted, have caused scholars a lot of confusion because Matthew doesn't actually expand and give us much more detail. Some scholars can't see how the 11 disciples who have witnessed the resurrected Christ are doubting. And so they make arguments that Matthew is not referring to the 11, rather Matthew is talking about all the disciples back in Judea and Galilee who have not yet experienced the resurrected Christ. I mean, although this argument seems logical, it also seems to be reading a bit too much between the lines for my own liking. Other scholars argue that it's some of the 11 that are doubting, but if you take this stand, it's still not helpful because Matthew doesn't tell us what the disciples are doubting about. Are they doubting whether it is in fact Jesus standing before them? Are they doubting that as good monotheistic Jews whether they're allowed to worship the person of Jesus Christ? Or is it that they've just experienced so much in such a short space of time that they're desperately trying to piece everything together and it doesn't quite make sense yet and this leads some of them to doubt? The reality is Matthew doesn't answer any of these questions because the disciples doubt is not the point of the passage. The point Matthew is making is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and therefore Jesus is worthy of our worship. We could ask then, why does Matthew include that some disciples doubted? Well, I believe Matthew includes those three words because he is highlighting that doubt 
is a normal part of following Jesus. We will all have moments when we will have some questions. We will all have moments when we struggle to take everything in and understand what God is doing. We will all have moments of doubt. What Matthew wants us to know is that when we have doubts, we need to remember that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus and he is always worthy of our worship. It's funny, I was, I was about to write this point and I was reading a book uh, by N.T. Wright that had nothing to do with worship. It's actually about what the Apostle Paul says about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but while I was reading this chapter, he just wrote this paragraph about worship. The timing, as I was just about to write this, I was like, man, it's got to be. So I thought I'd better put it in. Um, N.T. Wright says, Jesus has brought to its appointed goal the destiny of Abraham's people, not so that they could escape the world and go to heaven, but so that they could be part of a worldwide people of praise. United worship here and now rather than disunited church life in the present and a distant heaven after death was always, as far as Paul was concerned, the divinely intended goal of the Messiah's death. That is why what we do here on a Sunday morning is so important. Because when we gather together and unite and worship the risen Christ, we are starting the process of new creation. We are starting to live on earth as it is in heaven. We need to make sure that we are always a people of worship. I also need to make clear on this point that worship is much more than music and singing. In Matthew 28, when the disciples worshipped Jesus, they didn't pull out their instruments, hit play on the multi-tracks, and then start singing through a collection of songs from the top of the worship charts, 8030s. No. They most likely just fell prostrate on the ground in reverence and awe of their Messiah. No singing, no words, just a humble positioning before the Lord. We need to remember that worship is much more than just singing. Prayer, meditation, fasting, memorizing scripture, times of silence, giving, serving, befriending, celebration. These are all ways we can worship our Lord and God and the list could go on and on. You could actually argue, as I think N.T. Wright is doing, that true worship is whenever we start to live for the new creation that Jesus Christ has begun. Whenever we live on earth as it is in heaven, then we are worshiping. Whenever we're being in the image of Jesus Christ, then we are worshiping. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Our entire lives should be an act of worship which leads nicely to our next point. Our trade is to make disciples. Jesus is pretty clear about what his followers should be doing in verse 19, where he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, there it is. That is our trade. That is our job. That is our vocation. If we follow Jesus, then we should be making disciples of all nations. I wonder, has this been a priority for you in your life? I was recently watching a documentary about Elon Musk and the setting up of SpaceX and the launching of the Falcon Heavy rocket. There it is, which is the one where the boosters actually come off and self-land after the launch. It is pretty darn cool. 
Anyway, if you don't know a lot about SpaceX, the SpaceX project, their goal, their purpose is to get some of Earth's civilization to another planet. At this stage, Mars is their focus. As I was watching the documentary, it became so clear that everyone that is employed by SpaceX is so passionate and driven by the goal to get life on another planet. They're living and breathing this stuff. They are working ridiculously long hours as they try to achieve their goal and make it a reality. Now imagine that I turned up at SpaceX and I said to them, I don't really care about your goal and I don't want to do any work. I just want to watch and when you launch a spaceship, I want to have the best seat in the house. How do you think SpaceX is going to respond to my request? Yet I can't help but wonder if that's how many people treat church and Jesus Christ. They turn up to watch and have a good time, but they don't really want to put in any hard work. And they definitely don't care about the ultimate goal, which is to make disciples of all nations. Isn't it ironic that when it comes to employment, we can be so driven and focused and go above and beyond and give our lives for the goal of the company yeah, when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're often too tired. And so we become spectators. I mean, Jesus doesn't want spectators. Jesus wants followers who are going to go out and make disciples of all nations. Now, please don't mishear me or misunderstand me. I'm not saying you need to drop everything, leave your employment and go out full time and make disciples. Unless, of course, that's what God is saying to you. Don't argue with God. Rather, what I'm saying is that we need to be more strategic and more focused. Every moment of every day, we need to remember that our goal, our purpose, our trade is to make disciples. When you're with your family, you should be trying to make disciples. When you're with your friends, you should be trying to make disciples. When you're with your co-workers, you should be trying to make disciples. When you're at the sports club, you should be trying to make disciples. Now, I'm not suggesting that you start bashing all the people that you come into contact with with the Bible. What I'm suggesting is you become a bit more intentional. Actively work on your friendships with people that don't believe. Spend time in your own time praying over them. Build up trust with them. And over time, who knows what doors God might open for you. The point is, if Jesus has charged us to make disciples then this should be our number one goal and priority. We've actually got a few things coming up in the life of our church to help you with this trade of making disciples. On Saturday, the 25th of March, we're running a course called Restore where we're going to be teaching you how to do evangelism. Then over Easter weekend, we're actually going to be running an outreach event where you can invite your non-Christian friends to attend. And then just after Easter, on Tuesday, the 1st of May, we're going to be running Alpha, which is a great course to invite people to that don't know Jesus yet. Or, as I said earlier, downstairs need some volunteers. You can make disciples of our children. Yeah. Now, we'll give you more information about each of these events closer to the time. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to do our best to equip you and give you opportunities to help fulfill your trade of making disciples. However, as these events come up, the big question becomes, are they going to be a priority for you or are you going to be too busy and dismiss them as not important? Now that's for you and God to unpack. 
The big thing I want us to understand is that the trade of making disciples of all nations is not just for a select few. It is for every follower of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then he's saying you today, go and make disciples of all the nations. Let's be a disciple-making church. Next point, our trade is to baptize disciples. Quite good for a Baptist church, eh? Verse 19 says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I believe from a biblical perspective that baptism is so extremely important. First, Jesus was baptized. So why wouldn't we want to be like Jesus? Second, Jesus kind of tells us to get baptized in Matthew 28, 19. So why wouldn't we want to do what Jesus says? Third, when we take the wider New Testament teachings, especially those of Paul and Romans 6, we see this beautiful imagery that baptism unites us with Christ and symbolizes our dying to sin and then our coming back to life in Christ. Or you could rephrase that and say, coming back to life in new creation on earth as it is in heaven. And then fourthly, baptism is a public declaration saying that you are a follower of Jesus. In our first year in Wellington, my team, the mighty Highlanders, were playing the Hurricanes. And so Bex went along to support our team. Now, if you've ever supported a team when they're not playing at home, it's an interesting experience. I was, of course, wearing my Highlanders shirt. As you see, that's us on the way to the game. And I stood out like you wouldn't believe. And the comments and the teasing that I received from all the strangers around me, it was constant through the entire night. Every time the hurricanes did well, the jeers and the insults would be hurled at us as we sat in our Highlanders attire. Now, unfortunately, the Highlanders lost that night. So you can imagine what the train ride home was like. However, at the end of the game, we stayed back to try and meet some of the players. Now, at the time, Ben Smith, who was a famous All Black, was playing for the Highlanders. And of course, all the Hurricanes fans were desperately trying to get a photo with Ben Smith. I saw all of these people trying to swamp Ben Smith, and I thought to myself, I'm not going to be able to get a photo with one of my favorite players. At that moment, Ben Smith looked up. And he saw a random guy and girl wearing Highlanders shirts and a sea of Hurricanes colors. And he said, I'll take a photo with them. And look at the photo. <laughs> that is great imagery for what baptism represents. Baptism is like putting on the Jesus uniform and then going to an away game surrounded by opposition. We're living in the world we are naturally surrounded by the opposing team and baptism unites us with Jesus and shows the world what team we're supporting and playing for. Just like Ben Smith saw us and went, they're on our team. He, they're on our team. That's what baptism does with Jesus Christ. If you haven't been baptized, then I really encourage you to seriously think about taking that step of faith and obedience to your Lord and Saviour. And if you want more information about baptism, please come and talk to me or one of the elders or one of the key leaders in our church to find out more. And that leads nicely to our final point. Our trade is to disciple others. 
Verses 19 to 20 say, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is very clear that it's not just about making disciples, but it's also about teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. We've come up with a word in the modern church to describe what's happening here, and that word is discipleship. Discipleship. Followers of Jesus are to disciple others in the ways of the Lord. Now, a common excuse that I hear from people when I challenge them to disciple others is this. I don't know that much myself, and I'm still working out my own faith. How on earth can I disciple someone else? Well, Jesus kind of gives us the answer to this excuse in his commandment. Follow me here. You see, when Jesus tells us to go and make disciples and teach them everything that he has commanded them, this statement was revolutionary in its day. In the ancient Jewish world, you would only teach people that were worthy of being taught. In fact, some Jewish teachers wouldn't even waste their time teaching the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, to young girls because they considered this pointless. Jesus saying that everyone needs to be taught his ways was unheard of in the ancient Jewish world. Jesus is breaking down all the barriers. Women and men, boys and girls, Jews and Gentiles, poor and rich, the lame and the healthy, everyone is to be taught the ways of Jesus. And then in the ancient world, you didn't teach unless you expected the person to put it into practice and teach others. If you don't feel equipped to disciple someone, I want you to think about this. How do you think the uneducated fishermen felt on the mountain when Jesus told them to go out and make disciples? If you don't feel equipped to disciple someone, then I want you to think about this. How do you think a woman felt in the ancient Jewish world knowing that she was commanded to go out and make disciples? If you don't feel equipped to disciple someone, then that's exactly the point. I don't think we ever feel equipped, which is why Jesus ends the verse saying, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's only by the power of Jesus that we can begin to live this out. However, there is another reality. We cannot make disciples if we're not learning ourselves. My seven-year-old son Enzo is into this video called, game called Minecraft. Um, but what amazes me about this, about this game is the intention and focus he's putting into learning this game. Enzo will go onto YouTube and he'll watch videos of people teaching how to do certain things. And then Enzo will go onto the game and practice it himself and learn how to do it. The other day, Enzo came home with a library book that was all about things in Minecraft. And Enzo would read a chapter from the book and then he'd start playing the game, putting into practice what he just read. In fact, when we first started playing the game together, I was teaching Enzo now when we play the game, Enzo is teaching me because he's just learned so much. Now you might not be into video games, but we all have our things that we put in a lot of time and attention into learning and developing and growing. I have a question for all of us. 
why don't we put that same kind of attention and focus into learning about our faith? I'm fearful that even in the church, we're becoming biblically illiterate. I'm shocked by how much people don't seem to know about the Bible anymore. And I'm not talking about deep theology. I'm talking about basic things like Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. Jesus calls us to make disciples and the only way we're ever going to be good at discipleship is if we put the time into learning and growing ourselves. I guess the big question that we all need to ask ourselves is how much of a priority do we put on our call to follow Jesus? Because Jesus is not calling us just to sit tight until we go to heaven. No, Jesus is calling us to build his kingdom right here, right now on earth as it is in heaven. It's plain and simple. We are to make disciples. What I also found really encouraging is that you could summarize today's passage with our church's vision statement. Who can tell me what our church's vision statement is? Our office lady? <laughs> what is it? L- Believe, live, share. Believe, it's on the doors when you come in, if you didn't notice. Believe, live, share. Big words. Next time you come in, I encourage you, look up. Um, it's also the Wi-Fi password, which is a great way of learning our church's vision statement. Now how many people are going to learn it? <laughs> I said to the elders, the elders are saying, I don't think we share the church vision statement enough and, and they might not know it. And I said, well, my youth group knows it off by heart. And the elders looked at me, they were like, well, how? And I said, what's the church's password for the internet? And they just went, that's genius. I went, thank you, Daniel, that is genius. Daniel's looking at me like, oh no, now there's gonna be 100 people jumping onto the church. <laughs> but let's think about that. First, we have belief, believe. Well, that's when we worship Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. That's Matthew 28, 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Then we have live. Well, that's discipleship. That's Matthew 28, 20. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And finally, we have share. Well, that one should be obvious. It's evangelism. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Believe, live, share. That is our church's vision statement, and that is the essence of our passage today, which is known as the Great Commission. The challenging part is, we now have to put it into practice. But don't forget that from the original disciples to us today, we've all been overwhelmed by Jesus' call on our lives. And that's why we need to always hold on to those final words that he says to us. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You are not alone. The resurrected Christ will empower you for the journey ahead. Let's pray. And worship team, do you wanna join me? Well, loving Father, we thank you for those words that you challenge and inspire with us in Matthew. We thank you that you came to to start this process of new creation. You came to, to bring your kingdom here to restore things back. And we know it's not it's not finished yet, but we're on the journey.
We have the goal. And I pray that as a church, we will take that goal seriously to live for you, knowing that that is our worship. Lord, may we have humility to always seek what you are calling us to, towards. May we have the humility to, to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to reach? How do you want me to serve? How do you want me to live out your kingdom? And then when you respond to us, when you give us the answer, may we have the, the courage to step forward and do it. Knowing that by our own strength, we cannot do it. But by your strength, we can do it. We can do anything you call us towards in your power. By your strength, by your might. And Lord, for the times we get it wrong, for the times we make mistakes, for the time when the answers are not clear and we wrestle with things knowing what does it look like for your kingdom? We can't quite just work it out. It's not clear in scripture. Don't quite know what it is. In those moments, if we make mistakes, we just ask for your forgiveness, Lord. Forgive us for when we get it wrong. Forgive us for when we put our own agendas ahead of your agenda. Forgive us when we make it about us instead of about you. Forgive us when we aren't reflecting you to the world around us. So Lord, please be our light. Please guide us forwards. Please help us to be who you created us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.